Welcome to the Cuban Family Roots Podcast, a monthly podcast dedicated to discussing Cuban history and ancestral roots. I'm your host, Aileen Vega, podcasting from Woodbridge, New Jersey. As a genealogy enthusiast, I created the Cuban Family Roots Podcast to help others in their genealogical journey. I conduct interviews with Cuban researchers and geneticists, authors, and those with knowledge and expertise in Cuban history and genealogical research. I'm committed to conducting interviews that will point to genealogical information and resources to lead family historians in the right path to finding their family roots. From 1492, when Columbus claimed the island for Spaniards to present-day Cuban, our history has been rich and traumatic. Now our family history is slowly vanishing due to archival despair. Cubans inside and outside the island yearn to capture, learn our past, our origins, and our ancestral roots. Knowledge of our history is the key to keeping our Cuban family roots alive. I hope you enjoy listening to each episode as much as I enjoy producing them. The Cuban Family Roots Podcast can be heard on Spotify, Radio Public, Google Podcasts, and many other platforms. You can support us by simply listening and engaging. Welcome to another episode of the Cuban Family Roots Podcast. I'm your host, Aileen Vega, podcasting from Woodbridge, New Jersey. We're in December 2023, the last month of the year. And this will be our third year as a Cuban genealogy show that I did a couple of years ago uh, this year. And maybe like my first, my very first year uh, as a podcaster. The first interview is... Uh, with uh, Alina Garcia La Puerta. She will talk about Spanish nobility in Cuba. And she wrote a very fascinating book, La Belle Creole, The Cuban Countess Who Cultivated Havana, Madrid, and Paris. This is a great book, and Alina, throughout the interview, uh, provides us with uh, a lot of information. The next uh, interview that I provide in this, in this episode is one with uh, Stephen O. Yang, a Chinese-American, he and I talk about the Chinese who immigrated to Cuba. He goes over why they came to Cuba and uh, all their contributions uh, in Cuban society. Uh, my last interview and William Navarrete is a French-Cuban writer. And he writes novels and things of that nature. But in, in this interview, he talks about a book that he, he, uh, he wrote about, um, about genealogy uh, in the, the town of Orguin. So I hope that you enjoyed these three interviews. If you didn't hear it before, they're really great interviews and you, you will learn a lot as I did. So thank you for listening. Today's featured guest is the author of the book La Belle Creole, The Cuban Countess Who Cultivated Havana, Madrid, Paris. Let's welcome to the show Alina Garcia La Puerta. Alina, Hello. welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, today we want to celebrate a Cuban woman, and not too many uh, Cubans know of her. Her name is Mercedes Santa Cruz de Montalvo. We want to start with um, more with her background. Who is she? A hostess of probably one of the best known Parisian musical salons of the time from like in the 
twenties and thirties. Um, and at a time where Paris was like the musical capital of the world, it was pretty much the cultural capital of everything. Um, and she was incredibly well-known and, and successful. She was a very talented singer and she was also, she's considered officially the earliest female Cuban writer because she wrote, um, started publishing memoirs and other books while she was in Paris. But she comes from a family background that's really interesting for Cubans, for people who are interested in Cuba. Um, some people may or may not know, I think you did a show before a podcast on this. Um, there is sort of a Cuban aristocracy, people who had titles and what have you. Right. There are a lot of they're basically a lot of the families, the time period I'm talking about, she was born 1789. There were a lot of the families who also happened to own a lot of lands. They had ingenios, you know, sugar mills, they had tobacco, they have coffee, whatever. They, they sort of dominated the whole economic spectrum in colonial Cuba. And she came from a family that you could say is a part of this whole thing. So both both the Santa Cruz and the Montalvo families, and they're related to like a million other of these families of the time period. Um, her father and and mother, well, her father had a title. He was El Conde de Haruco, um, and later on he had another title, Conde de Mopox. Um, he, as a young man, inherited you know a fair amount of money, um, and he was someone who sort of was a, a person who didn't you know, go to Madrid and make a lot of contacts in the court, sort of also represent some of his family and interest of people he knew and stuff like that. And his wife, who was, they had had two children and they left both of them, including Mercedes, who was only about two months old or a few months old at the time, they left her in Cuba. And they didn't even leave her with her brother. They got split up in different family members. And she was really raised by her um, great grandmother and who she called Mamita. Um, and so her parents sailed off and her father had incredible success making contacts over in Madrid and was involved in pretty much every economic thing going on in Cuba, became a sort of big force in that. But she was still in, in Cuba and she did not see her father again until he returned when she was just almost nine years old, seeing her mother really, you know, because her mother didn't return back. And she also had siblings in Madrid who she at this point had never met either. At some point, you know, her father decided when she was around 12 years old that he would take her to Spain um, to sort of be polished up so that at some point she could be married because that would be the typical plan for a girl of her type of family. You know, you you, you sort of get polished up. Um, she had been put for a time at a, in the convent of Santa Clara and she actually ran away, escaped. It was a big scandal in Havana at the time. Uh, but basically the idea was she would make a useful marriage, you know, um, a, a well-connected marriage. Um, so he took her, she had a, she went to Spain with him and uh, it was the time that she met her mother. And then her father sailed away almost immediately and went back to Cuba to continue his, his business dealings and his uh, government positions and all that stuff. And she actually never saw him again. She was very, she adored her father, as she wrote mm -hmm. later on. She really, really adored him, but she never saw him again. Um, and, and yes, and he died while she was still in, in Spain. So that sort of gets you there. She, she's also a person who historical timings and coincidences, she just happened to be in a lot of really incredibly interesting places at the heart of certain 
things. So she was in Cuba when, you know, before at a time that before it had become this big sugar producer, it was just starting to get that way. And it was really mm -hmm. all her families who were involved with that. Then she was in Madrid at a time when short, you know, after her father died and such, you get the Napoleonic invasions and um, all the Napoleonic wars. And her family was very involved in all that. Um, so she, all of the, what they call in English, the Peninsular War in Spain. Um, and then after that, she actually ended up being married off to a French general. And after the French were defeated, Napoleon, you know, and all the forces were defeated, she actually had to flee into exile in Paris, which is how she ended up in Paris. And okay. then she sort of transformed herself. I mean, and that's sort of, that's where people will know about her because of what she, she basically sort of took charge of her own life at that point after they had lost a lot of their, you know, sort of standing, social standings and such like that. And it was incredible, but she became one of the most, you know, influential women um, in Paris, in France, knew everyone, everyone knew her. I mean, talking about some of the most famous people in music and opera and writers. Um, she, you know, uh, Alexander Dumas, who wrote The Count of Monte Cristo, you know, and mm -hmm. yes. one of his earliest books, he features a whole evening at the Salon of the, Con of the Condesa de Merlin, of the Comtesse Merlin. And, uh, and he describes her as a character, you know, his characters are describing her in the book and how she goes from one group to another, like welcoming everyone. And she's so charming and she always just has the exact correct phrase and what have you. Um, but she was really something else. And she ended up writing her memoirs about growing up in Cuba, about her time in Madrid. Also, eventually she took a trip back to Cuba because she never forgot her Cuban roots. She was very, very much remembered them. And um, she ended up writing a book about that, which the Spanish version is called Viaje a La Habana. It, it captures what life was like in 1840. Havana, and it's probably the best description of colonial Cuba than anybody that still can be read today. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so those are sort of like the highlights of her, her life, but it was more everything that she managed to accomplish in another country as an exile, as a, you know, it sort of has a lot of um, echoes of a lot of things with Cubans, you know, the, the having to leave your homeland, you know, always remembering it, having, right. you know, being able sometimes to go back um, and then sort of like remembering it again. But basically she, she achieved quite, quite a bit in, in France. And as I said, she's the first, she's officially the, the first um, Cuban fem female author. So, which is a big deal because back then yeah. women didn't publish a lot. So it was right. Yeah. I don't think they were allowed to. <laughs> yeah, no, they didn't have as many opportunities. In Europe, you know, in France, yes, more so. No Cuban right. woman did this. I mean, like I said, they were her path would have been just to get married, which is sort of initially what they did, you know, what yeah, you know, the path. But she decided that wasn't enough. And she she really it's interesting because by the by the time of her heyday in, in France, no one ever mentioned her father or her uncle who had been important in Madrid or her husband, it was all about her. She was the one that everybody focused on. So, and she did it all on her own, right? And she did it all on her own. I mean, yes, she obviously she arrived with you know, some 
connections, maybe she was able to be introduced, but it was really her own talents. I mean, it was her musical talent. It was her own charm. It was, she had learned from her mother. Her mother had had a, also was very, you know, a, a good hostess, so to speak. Um, so she knew how sort of she, she knew how to make her way in society, but she had her own talents. And I think she was also very savvy in ways that we don't think of someone from like, you know, the 1800s being, but she knew sort of how to market herself. You know, she, she was friends with a lot of important journalists and editors of like newspapers and magazines then. And, you know, she got a lot of coverage. So she would host these salons where they became known as the passport to celebrity. So if you wanted to establish yourself as like a musician or something like that, performing at her salon was like a big deal and you would get a lot of coverage. Um, but she was always in these like weekly columns or if she organized a concert for some charity, which she sort of also developed the whole idea of a charity concert. She sort of, you know, pioneered that idea. She would get a lot of coverage and she was just, when she wrote her first book, she used all her friends, you know, all her connections to get well-known writers to do reviews of it or to, you know, be included in the newspaper or to get serialized. Um, so she did everything she could. She knew how to sort of work the 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 equivalent of the social media, I guess, back then. I, I imagine, yeah. like, you know, if she lived today, she would have had an Instagram account or something <laughs> like that, I would imagine. In but, fact, um, she, she was a participant in the Cuban uh, slavery debate. I mean, she so she, she must have been somebody very influential to even get into that debate. Yeah, so, so yes, because when she went back to Cuba, um, after being gone for, like, 38 years or more, um, she you know, she found this country that was totally transformed and the whole sugar and slavery was an issue and what have you. She had a lot of friends in what they would call, I don't know, like, you know, the sort of the intellectuals of Cuba. Um, there was a lot of censorship back then by the Spanish government. So those people couldn't really publish very easily, like even debate or discuss, you know, mm -hmm. uh, publicly things like the slavery issues or the trade, you know, the whole things like that. Um, they gave her a lot of information and actually she published one sort of simplified version in Spanish, which is Viaje a La Habana, which is more mm -hmm. kind of cultural and things like that. And then there was a more extensive book written in, published in France and that covered the economy, whatever. And it had a chapter on the slave, on the slave trade and on whether Spain should enforce stopping the slave trade, which they should have. Um, and she wrote all of that and it was, based on a lot of the information given by her friends who they would have gotten in incredible trouble or not even been able to publish it. But she, you know, with her influential circle and being abroad, she could publish it for them. And, you know, they then took that, that part about the slave and, and translated it into Spanish into like a pamphlet, but it was never actually allowed to be published in Cuba. It was available in, in Spain. It was available in France. It was given to people in the U S actually. Um, to read, but it was interesting because she, again, that was like something that no Cuban woman actually had ever done before. Very few women in general, but um, right. yeah, so she, she definitely served, tried to help, you know, her, her friends in Cuba because she never forgot her homeland. She felt, you know, incredible passion for her. The, the way she wrote about it, you can just see how much she longed for, you know, remembered her time as a child there too, and just remembered the country and, and everything. It's really some some beautiful lyrical writing that she did about it. So 
yeah but yeah she she was cutting edge in a lot of ways um do you think she was influential in debate about slave slavery i think it was taken seriously because as i said she was also voicing what did it actually accomplish anything i don't know because at the same time that that got published is when cuba had some of the most um there was a big uprising and it, the the spanish government really came down really hard it's the escalera mm-hmm. conspiracy uh came down very hard on it so most of her friends who had you know been trying to have these debates and what have you were many of them were imprisoned or exiled for you know either forever or for a time um so it's it's difficult to tell how much influence you know per se her her writing it but it was definitely something that it brought it more to the attention and i think it probably added you know added more to the discussion which was a, it was a, it was something that was like quite debated because um you know for for quite a while because in in Europe there were different thoughts about the whole thing but um yeah it's it's hard to answer that exactly because right, right. you know but definitely it was something quite quite unique and especially how she, how she presented it and what have you my next question is a little bit more personal is about you why did you decide to write about <laughs> let you yeah I, i know this this research took you how many years It was about 10 years probably from start to finish. I mean, not all of it intensive, but towards the end it was more intensive, but it started off started off with a lot of curiosity actually. I had uh, I had always liked, you know, I was interested in my in Cuba in general as most Cuban Americans, most Cuban born people are. Um and I had some books that were I think quite popular for a while. They were like photographic coffee table type books of old havana you know the buildings and things like that and several of them mentioned or would mention you know describe describe what life was like in colonial cuba and they quoted her they quoted that viaje a la habana you know mm-hmm. they, they said oh as the condesa merlin described or as the french you know uh, as the condesa merlin who lived in france you know blah 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 you know described and i i remember thinking what is this cuban woman doing in paris you know and I was just really curious about her and I started looking up what I could about her then um and then the first things I found were you know all of these little bio things saying you know she knew everyone she knew you know Napoleon she knew all of these famous composers she knew Balzac she knew Dumas she knew this she knew all these writers she was everywhere you know this, and I was like how could I have not heard of this Cuban woman who had been <laughs> he was all over the place and it it has to be exaggerated you know it's just typical exaggeration you know that she couldn't possibly have been in all these places know all of these people and been that famous and i have never heard of her so you know not that i know everything but just that's just amazing to me so the more i started looking into her the more fascinated i become because she sort of seduces you a little bit i mean she really yeah. is a fascinating character she really is but i also found so much confusion you know like one person would say this another author would write something else they contradicted each other and so i just said you know the only way to get to the bottom besides reading her own works obviously is to go back to sort of like primary research you know actually go to the archives try to find actual documents find out what's really going on at the different periods um and so that's what i did and that's what sort of slowly led me to want to put it as a book and sort of 
bring her back to life because she was very famous and she was sort of forgotten. And then some people, she had started becoming not well known again, but at least more known in the academic world, you know, because people mm -hmm. were looking at her writings and they were finally, finally acknowledging her as like the first Cuban female writer, um, things like that. But I just was like, she has such a fascinating life and she was such a, an amazing character that I wanted, I wanted more people to know about her and Cubans to know, you know, Cuban Americans to know about her. Cause I think we don't know enough about this whole colonial past, you know, whether you like it or not, but we just don't know a lot about it. Um, I think our starting point started, you know, with the revolution or the war of independence or, you know, what have you, but there's so much, you know, we were, you know, Cubans were everywhere. They, they, she wasn't the only one in Europe, for example. She wasn't the only one in Madrid. She wasn't the first one in Paris. Um, she wasn't the last. You know, there were people also, many before her, traveled to all kinds of places and did all kinds of things. Um, so I think all of that, to me, was, you know, trying to bring back a little bit of, of our history back to life. In her memoir and travel writings, she was able to introduce Europeans to the 19th century Cuban society. Do you think... Had it not been for her, Europeans probably wouldn't have so much about us Cubans in that time. Yeah, I don't think they knew a lot because actually they they didn't even, even though France, for and, and, and this goes for Spain and France, actually, even though it's next to Spain, didn't always know a lot about Spain itself, too, uh, let alone, you know, what they viewed as the colonies and what have you. They, I think they didn't know a lot um, and a lot of what they knew maybe was a little bit it, it fascinated them though they they viewed it as a little bit more exotic she definitely played that a little bit too in her writings to you know to mm -hmm. sort of like get them interested um but yeah i i think definitely i mean even cubans i mean the the, the time period she wrote about when she was a child you know from from before she went to havana i mean mm -hmm. sorry, before she went to madrid no one writes about that time period there's very little anywhere available like firsthand that's not like an official document you know or something like that right um, you know her descriptions of what life was like yes and um, she definitely definitely introduced because lots of other people in France then became interested in traveling there and wrote and published their own sort of versions after she did or around the time she did and they almost all start by mentioning her, you know, how they, they know, you know, about her, about her mem in her memoirs that she had mentioned this and then they say that. Um, so she definitely was the, the person who, who got people interested in, in looking at that. And I think in Spain, it was the same as it is even, you know, today. It's like they knew, maybe they knew a little bit more um, mm -hmm. because there were more, many more links than people realized, you know, in terms of how it was governed and people going back and forth. But even they viewed it as her mother. There's a description of writer writing in during her mother's lifetime in Madrid, um, used her mother as like a character. And uh, it's not a well-known book or anything, but he used her as a character and he had her very exotic this beautiful, wealthy, you know, um, Cuban woman uh, of the tropics who used to send, was so wealthy and so beautiful and so this, that used to send all her laundry all the way from Spain to Cuba to be washed. So then it would come back smelling of the tropics. And people actually believe this kind of thing, you know, it's like, <laughs> but it's like, I don't think you could actually do that, but who knows? <laughs> it's like, um, 
yeah, but the, they she definitely introduced them, I think, to to a lot of aspects of, of life in Cuba. That was one of her goals, actually, with with the Viaje a La Habana and uh -huh. the Havana. As a result of your book, has anyone in genealogy contacted you, <laughs> claiming that uh, she's an ancestor of theirs or anything like that? Well, I had yes, I have. I well, there were. I was lucky, first of all, to meet some of her actual descendants, who I tracked down using genealogy, actually, like using oh, wow. different um, different websites that are well known. You know, trying to figure out because I was pretty sure she had descendants through her daughter, not through her sons, but through her daughter, and she does. And I was lucky to meet them. But after the book came out, um, yeah, I did. I either at talks I did or reaching out through you know through email through my website or what have you. Some people actually were, you know, uh, descendants of different family members, you know, so for example, like, um, from her Montalvo side, or the O'Farrells, who she's related to, you know, who was also her mother's side, or, or the Santa Cruz, or different people like that. Um, and they were all very excited, because they clearly, if they did know about her, and it was somehow linked to their family, you know, they were very interested. Then I also had people who had had sort of like, some family story like an oral you know thing of like somehow they were related to her um mm -hmm. sometimes they would say they thought maybe descendants which was a little difficult because all her descendants are actually in france the, the ones that live um right. but but there was probably some connection um it could be through the santa cruz or whatever and i think that showed you a little bit of how how big an impact she had, you know, back in the day, she was quite well known that mm -hmm. families were, you know, would be like, we're connected to her somehow, you know, what have mm -hmm. you. Um, and I did, you know, if anybody did actually reach out, I would try to figure out how they might be, because I know that I love genealogy. So, you know, I, I mm -hmm. want to know how, uh, whatever, how people are related or how I'm related to something or not. But um, researching her actually also was, a great learning experience mm -hmm. for where where to find a lot of sources for genealogy for Cubans, even things that might not be so obvious, um, because you know it, it was a wonderful wonderful sort of crash course in you know different families. I spent a lot of time learning about the families, about the old families, um, and also where to find information. You know, in Cuba, in Spain. Um, or wherever else somebody might go, you know, different, different archives are different, different countries have different ways to access like baptisms or what have you. France was actually very straightforward for Paris. Um, Spain is, can be hit or miss depending, you know, where you are. But it was really, it, it was actually a wonderful way to, to learn more about um, researching genealogy. And ironically, one of the, I guess, biggest things that might be helpful. Her father, her own father was obsessed with genealogy because everybody in those days mm -hmm. was actually really interested in genealogy because anytime you petitioned for something, you often started by saying who you were the son of, you know, what services your family had rendered to the king or had done this. And this was not just wealthy people. This could be anyone, you know, because anyone who needed a pension or this or that, they'll say, you know, and so they would do these informants. Her father was obsessed when he wanted to get a, a second title. So he documented everything. He had a huge family tree and she writes about it. She writes about sitting on his lap as a child and he pointing out where she fit into the branches of her family tree. But I was gonna say that all of these informants, these, these documents that people would do, 
to petition for whatever reasons, they're like a goldmine for genealogy. And you can still find quite a few of them um, mm -hmm. in Spain and, you know, through through bares, through the portal for looking at Spanish archives or what have you. And I've found for my own families, I've found lots of things like that. Um, and it, as I said, it doesn't actually have to be a family like, you know, her, her father with his title or what have you. It's often just normal what I would call just normal people, you know, yeah. just um, petitioning for what have you. So, yeah, there's a, a, a lot of genealogy is, is linked to this book, I think. Well, that's great to know. And, and if people want to find the book here in the United States or in Europe, where should they go? Um, they, they can go to, yeah, they can go to Amazon or to, you know, um, whichever, you know, places to buy books. Um, it usually pops up now, so you can get a copy. Um, and yeah, hopefully they can, you can learn a little bit more. I also have a website. They can read more about her if they want to um, on the website. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, hopefully they learn a little bit more about her and through her, maybe a little bit more about Cuban, you know, the Cuban world that she described and that she lived in. At that time, yeah. Yeah. We, we, don't, we don't know a lot in, in And the fact, even when I was talking to you, you were describing some of the things that were going on in Havana. I just found that so fascinating. Yeah, no, she, it, it's, there's a bit of that. There is a bit of history in the book in the sense of trying to explain her father, you had to explain a lot of background, you know, trying to explain why her family did certain things, you had to explain sort of the context. But, um, but she also, the nice thing with her own memoirs and her own books, and I quote a bit from them, she also describes places that, you know, Cubans might know or might have heard of, but at a different point in time, like her family owned a lot of land around San Antonio de los Baños, mm -hmm. you know, it was because that area was controlled. I was by the, born there. <laughs> well, she describes, yeah. she describes swimming in San Antonio de los Baños with her cousins because the Cardenas family were the ones who sort of owned most of the land around there and that's her her father's maternal side um and she spent a lot of time there and she has this beautiful description of swimming with her cousins and you know grabbing fruit from trees and and she just it's a it's actually one of the most beautiful descriptions of a time and she's talking about um you know at the latest it is probably she's talking about the seven the maybe 1800 or something like that mm -hmm. um It's just amazing. So she describes certain things. Um, when she describes in Viaje a La Habana, one of the most famous things that everybody sort of quotes or they'll show it with a photo, uh, an image, um, are the carriage rides that people used to take, you know, mm -hmm. at certain times. But she describes them also in her memoirs as a child. You know, they would all go riding in carriages in the evenings to sort of like drift to sleep or, or you know, she talks about the famosa brisa, you know, what everybody talks about. She's she talks a lot about that and seeing the ocean from, you know, Havana Bay and all that stuff. So she really, really describes um, a place that if if you see old Havana, mm -hmm. you realize what she's describing. It's really right. amazing. So. Yeah. So yes, she does talk about San Antonio de los Baños. I didn't realize you were born there, so yeah, I'll have well, to find. Was, I'll have it's to right find next to La Salud, where I, where I was raised. I was well, raised in Santo Cristo La Salud. Is right yeah. next to San Antonio de los Baños. Well, I will um I will find the quote and send it to you. So. Oh, that, thank you so much. <laughs> and listen, I'm not gonna let you go until you tell me what what are you doing next? What's up your sleeve? Any other books? 
Um, well, I've been doing a lot of research. Um, not sure. Well, a couple of projects. So yeah, but it's all tied to Cuban history, different things. Um, some of I've found some interesting stories in my own family, like going back a long time, like going back to the 16th century and such. So I'm trying to see if I can work something like that because I'm just fascinated by all the all the Cuban history. I just find it fascinating, and I love researching about it. So, and I feel like we don't know enough about it. So, it's yeah, trying to share that with people. So maybe But, like a memoir or something. No, not so much a memoir. I think it would be more historical novel or something historical. like that. You know, okay. trying to make it so people would enjoy reading it, but you know, be stored because there's so many. You know how they say truth is stranger than fiction i mm -hmm. that's the kind of stories i find like stories that you go you couldn't have invented if i tried to invent it i couldn't have invented it so well that's great thank you so much for being on the show no problem it's a privilege thank you so much it's it's wonderful to to have this chat about mercedes And today in the Cuban Family Roots podcast, we have a very special guest, Steve Oyen. And uh, we're going to ask Steve some questions about the Chinese in Cuba. Hi, Steve. How are you? I'm doing fine, Eileen. Good morning. Ha Good morning. How's California? Actually, I'm in the Bay Area, so it's kind of cold, but probably not as cold as where you are. <laughs> That, that's true. Yeah, we're, it's pretty cold uh, out here in New Jersey. So I'm very excited um, to share today's uh, conversation with you. Um, can can you start off um, by telling us a little bit about the um, the Chinese and why they came to Cuba and what part of China they came from? Sure. Um, let me start by talking about where they came from, because the vast majority of Chinese who went to Cuba over the past 150 or 180 years, came from what's called Guangdong province. It's a province in the southeast coast of China. So it's basically the area near Hong Kong. I think most people know where Hong Kong is. So if, right. you, if you draw a circle, maybe like 100 miles from Hong Kong, the vast majority of Chinese who went to Cuba come from that area. Some others came from the next province over, which is called Fujian, which is just above, just up the coast from Guangdong and across from Taiwan. But most of the Chinese who ended up in Cuba came from that area that I mentioned around Hong Kong. And it's called the Pearl River Delta area because the main river there is called the Pearl River. Mm -hmm. And there's like eight or nine or ten I guess you could call them counties in that region. And as I said, many, many Chinese Cubans come from that area. It's kind of like saying if you go abroad and all the, uh, well, let's talk about it this way. Um, you know, in, in Cuba, a lot of the people who have Spanish roots come from the Canary Islands and Galicia, which of course right. is their own cultures. And, you know, Spain is a very big country, but a lot of Cubans with Spanish roots come from these particular areas in Spain. So it's very similar with the Chinese in Cuba. Even though China is a gigantic country, the vast right. majority of Chinese who ended up in Cuba come from a pretty small and culturally distinct region. 
So that's is there, they, is there yeah, any any reason why they came from that particular area that you know of? Yeah, for sure, because um, that was the part of China that had some of the earliest contact with the West. You know, when when the Portuguese came, when the Dutch came, when the English especially came. You know, they established footholds and, uh, and colonies. You know, Hong Kong became a colony of um, of Great Britain after the Opium War in 1840. So um, because of that, that sort of provided ports of exit. People, those were areas where people could leave. You know, it's on the ocean. And so it was a way for them to leave um, China. Also, the conditions in that part of China were really bad in the 1800s. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a lot of, um, well, I, I guess I would put it this way, the, 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 the national government, which was the Qing dynasty, was very weak at that time. It was under a lot of pressure from the Western countries that were trying to colonize China. And there was a lot of internal problems, too. There were famines, floods, a lot of local civil wars. So there was just a lot of chaos and disorder in, in that part of China, starting in the, roughly in the mid-1800s. So th those were the reasons people felt like they had to get out of there. You know, things were just really bad. And so that was kind of the, the factors that pushed people to want to leave um, China. And then in terms of what, where they ended up, there was a big outflow from that part of China all over the world. You know, large numbers went to Southeast Asia, you know, in terms mm -hmm. of Malaya, Singapore, Vietnam, Thailand, but also a a lot of immigration to the West, to the U.S. As you know, you know, a lot of Chinese went to California and New York. Right. But there was also a major outflow of Chinese to Latin America and the Caribbean. So to Cuba, Jamaica, Trinidad, Dominican Republic. And that even continues now. So, you know, there's large communities in Colombia and Venezuela. So there was a lot of Chinese outflow to Latin America, the Spanish-speaking countries, and to the Caribbean. Um, you know, it, starting in the mid-1800s, there was a need for labor in, in Cuba on the sugar mm -hmm. plantations. So the first big wave was in the, starting in around the 1840s, and for the next 30 or 40 years, something like 70-something thousand Chinese, overwhelmingly men, very few women, came to Cuba as um, indentured uh, laborers. So basically they were providing labor on the sugar plantations and in other industries. And the conditions they were under were, was basically horrible. It's very similar to slavery. And they, they right. in, in many cases, they worked aside, alongside enslaved Africans um, in Cuba. So it was a, the, the difference though, is that the Chinese generally went under these eight year contracts. So they basically, went to Cuba, had to work for eight years under really terrible conditions. But those that survived, many of them stayed in Cuba and they went to the towns and cities and started small businesses. Mm -hmm. um, so that was sort of the first wave. And an interesting thing is in the 1870s, a number of Chinese came to Cuba, not from China, but from, from the United States. They were called the Californios because Chinese in the U.S. were facing a lot of discrimination. You know, the um, the anti-Chinese, the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed in the U.S. in the 1880s. And so there was a lot of discrimination against the Chinese. And so some in the U.S. decided we need to get out of here. Let's go to Cuba where maybe we'll 
will be able to do better. So right. at that time, a number of Chinese went from the U.S. to Cuba, and a lot of them were small business people. So that it provided sort of an infusion of capital to the um, Chinese community that was already there. And that also accelerated the development of small businesses. So that's kind of the 1800s. In, in nine, starting around the World War I and 1920s, there was another big wave of immigration from China to Cuba. Mm -hmm. um, that's actually when my, my family and my wife's family uh, went to Cuba. And a lot of those folks were, again, um, small business people. So, you know, that wave of immigration tended to settle in towns and cities and start small businesses, you know, uh, businesses like ice cream stores, bodegas, uh, restaurants, that kind of thing. Right. Is that around the time when they established El, El Barrio Chino? Um, Barrio Chino was actually started earlier than that in the 18, uh, 1870s. Uh, yeah. Uh, in the area right behind the uh, Capitolio in, in Havana. Mm -hmm. um, and it's obviously it's still there. There's very few Chinese left there now. But that that uh, neighborhood was established in the um, 1800s, the last half of the 1800s. Yeah, I was reading that it, you know, they it encompassed like about 44 square blocks. Right. Like, you know, Chinese commerce, you know, restaurants, laundromats. Yeah. I mean, you name it. Yeah, Cuba used to have the largest Chinese community in all of uh, Latin America and the Caribbean. It was it was very large at one point. Um, I think in every small village in Cuba had had um, some Chinese population because I I myself come from a very small village, and I remember we had Chinese families in in that village, as small as it was as it is. I, I think they, that, they still live there today. Yeah, some of the families. That that's very true. You know, I I have friends who have relatives in places like Haruko, and my my wife's family was out in Batabano. Um, I know there were families in Ciego uh, uh, de Avila. Uh, right. We had relatives way out on the eastern end in Santiago de Cuba. So yeah, you're as you said, they were in <laughs> the big cities, but also the small towns. Yeah, the small little villages, because, um, for example, from my village, uh, La Salud, mm -hmm. um, there's a very famous, um, I think he works for the New York Times. Uh -huh. I know it's a New York uh, newspaper. Uh, his name, his last name is Lam, uh -huh. L-A-M. Yes. He's a writer, uh, one, of, one of the big New York um, newspapers. Oh, okay. And he's, he's from my village. Wow. So, he, we, you know, we know his family. Nice. So yeah, yeah, we, we, we had a lot, you know, like a handful of Chinese um, families that lived in, in, in that small village. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure it's like, as you said, same thing all over across Cuba. Right. Um, let me mention the last big wave of uh, mm -hmm. Chinese immigration to Cuba was in the 1940s and 1950s, because that was when the war or the civil war between the nationalists and the communists was going on in China. And so that, again, caused a lot of chaos. <laughs> um, it uh, prompted a people to say, you know, we, we want to get out of China again. So, uh, again, there was a wave of um, immigration out of China because of all the, the civil war and the establishment of the People's Republic. And so right. 
uh, a big wave came to Cuba in the late 40s and early 1950s. So that was sort of the last big wave since then, since the Cuban Revolution. There's been some, but very, very little um, immigration from China into Cuba. Just, just a handful of people, very few. I think actually the a lot of the, the Chinese in Cuba have le left Cuba around the 19, late 1950s, 60s after the revolution. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And like in my own, my wife's family, that's they left um, in the early 1960s after the revolution. And, you know, they, they were afraid that, you know, their small businesses, they had a bodega, and, you know, the family ran a number of bodegas and they could sort of see the handwriting on the wall that if their businesses got nationalized, they would be in a tough situation. So most of um, my wife's family left. A few stayed. A few are still there, but um, the vast majority of her family. And then certainly, I would say a majority of the Chinese Cubans generally also left. Some stayed, but a lot left for Puerto Rico or Florida or New York, New Jersey, as you, as you know. Yes, my, my next question um, centers around um, an organization that you belong to called friendsofroots.org. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how the, your organization or, that you're part of or that you started can help those who have um, Cuban-Chinese background in terms of their genealogy? Okay, I'll give it a try. So um, I'm with this group called Friends of Roots. It's an all-volunteer nonprofit organization. And basically, we've been working with Chinese Americans. We started with Chinese American young people, but now we work with all ages. And what we do is have a program where Chinese Americans can sort of research their genealogy, their family history, learn something about Chinese culture and geography, and we help them figure out where they're from in China. And, um, you know, over 30 years, we've gotten pretty good at that. And so what we do is the culmination of, of the program is to actually take people back to their ancestral villages in the Pearl River Delta and Guangdong province. So we, we actually take groups back there so they can visit their villages. And if there's still relatives and family there, they can meet their family members. And I think the, what we help is, you know, a lot of Chinese Americans, if you're the third, fourth, fifth, sixth generation, they don't speak Chinese anymore. And they don't really know where to start in their search for their genealogy. And so we've been able to help them. Now, obviously, the last couple of years, because of the pandemic, we, we're not going anywhere. We're sitting at home and we haven't been to China for a while. Um, I, I should also mention that over the years, we've noticed that a lot of people that have come to our program their families actually didn't come directly to the U.S. from China a lot, just like, um, you know, well, I guess the way I would put it, we noticed that a lot of people that we worked with had roots in Latin America, in Mexico, right. Nicaragua, Cuba, Peru. You know, Peru has a gigantic Chinese population. Yes. So over the years, we thought it would be kind of cool to visit the diaspora communities in Latin America and the Caribbean. So starting in uh, 2019, we took a group down to Lima and we toured around Peru to, to visit the Chinese community there, learn more about it. Uh, one of the leaders for that program was actually born and raised in a Chinese Peruvian family. So it's always good to have sort of an insider to help us figure, figure it out. 
Right. And then in March 2020, just before the pandemic, we took a group down to uh, Cuba to meet the Chinese community down there, which is it's kind of fading away. I hate to say it, but, you know, uh, it's the community is very small these days, but we were still able to go down to uh, Cuba and meet um, the Chinese community down there. Now, in terms That's of very what, neat. Yeah, That's very neat. So in, in terms of helping Chinese Cubans, I, I think there's sort of two parts to it. Okay. One is tracking down who your ancestors, who your Chinese ancestors in Cuba are. Now, I think that's, it's hard. It's not an easy thing to do for a number of reasons. You know, by this time, there's not very many um, Chinese speaking, Chinese Cubans left in Cuba. That, that the community is, the community of people who actually came from China who still speak Chinese is very small and they tend to be in their 80s and 90s. Also, right. COVID has hit them very hard. So I think there's probably less than 100 or so people left in Barrio Chino who were actually born in born in China. Um, but there, as you know, there are thousands and thousands of Cubans who have some Chinese roots. So the the first thing to do if you want to trace your roots is figure out who is your ancestor, what was his or her name. And if at all possible, it's you got to find their name in Chinese because if you don't have the Chinese characters, it makes it much harder. And I'll give you one reason why, you know, suppose the name is spelled Leon, you mm -hmm. know, Spanish. Well, Leon could be a Lee, could be a Leong, it could be a number of other surnames in Chinese. And unless you know the actual Chinese surname, it makes it hard to figure out where that person came from in China. So it's very important to try to figure that out. Um, Are there any like organizations within Cuba that someone can look, you know, to help them with information? There are. And the first one I would point to is called the uh, Casino Chunghua, which is kind of the main umbrella organization in Havana for the Chinese community that's there. They actually have a website now, finally, which makes it much easier to be in contact with them. Oh, and, that's great. And the website is called... Um, bariochinocuba.com mm, so okay. that's a great place to start and I would also mention that they they have a an, an office still I think it's on Amistad in Barrio Chino mm -hmm. and it's been a while but like almost 20 years ago I was there and I was able to look through some of their records and they maintain paper records, you know, records of many Chinese in Cuba, not just from Havana, but from all over the island. It wasn't exactly complete, but still there are hundreds and hundreds of records there. Now, even 20 years ago, some of those records were not in great condition because, you know, they're on paper and on, with the humidity and everything else there, they were not particularly well preserved, but they were there. And we were actually able to find some records when we searched through there. Those records are in Chinese and in Spanish. So um, that's a great place to start if you have some idea who your Chinese Cuban um, ancestor was. If you can get a name, even if the name is in Spanish and not in Chinese, that might be a place to start. Now, also, at, as I said, the Casino Chunghua is kind of the umbrella organization. If you go to that website I mentioned, mm -hmm. it, you, there are links to various organizations 
throughout Cuba. Most of them are in Havana, but they're all there's still some out in the provinces. They're still out in Santiago de Cuba. And those organizations, some of them are like what I call them regional organizations. So they represent Chinese who come from a particular part of the Pearl River Delta. Some of them are family associations, you know, say for the Chans or the Lees or the Wongs. Okay. So they're all listed there under that that big website and their, their contact information is there. Now, again, I think it because there are fewer and fewer people who still speak Chinese and read and write Chinese, it is still going to be hard, but that's a place to start. And so for a Chinese Cuban, again, the place to really to start is try to figure out the name of your ancestor, any documents you can find like passports, um, birth, death, or marriage notices, tickets for steamships, you know, all that kind of thing can help figure out who that person was and then eventually where that person came from. And then once you have that, then it's easier to find out where the family um, came from in China. I, I would also mention that um, it's really important if you can to get out to the cemetery where your ancestor or ancestors may be buried because Typically, when Chinese people die, wherever they are in the world, um, their gravestone will record their name in Chinese characters, their dates of birth and death, of course, and also where they're from, down to the village in China. And wow. That's over the really years good. when we've done our work for Friends of Roots, it's really critical. You know, if you can find where your ancestor's gravestone was, is take a picture of it. You know, you know, people obviously, a lot of people don't read Chinese, but if you can take a picture of it, of the Chinese characters, that's, that's really the key that can unlock all that history and the connection back to a village in China across the ocean. Um, now, let me ask yeah. you, that organization that you mentioned in Cuba that, that has kept records, Yes. Do, do they, are they able to help with translations? You know, they, they, when I worked with them like 20 years ago, yes, because they still had a number of people who read and write Chinese. I think they, they may at this point, but again, you know, with the older generation dying off pretty quickly, I don't know how many folks are still there that can read and write Chinese, but I know there are some, there still has to be a few. And when we were there with our group in March of 2020, there were still people there that could help who could read and write Chinese. And so I, I you know, this is the kind of thing you got to do it now because that generation isn't going to be around forever. Right. So yeah. once that link is lost, it's going to make things much harder to figure out who's who and where they came from. If, if you don't have people that can help you, you know, read and translate the Chinese stuff. So again, I think that's the hardest part is figuring out who your ancestor was in Cuba. Once you can figure that out, though, then the next part of the search is, is well, where did this person come from in China? And that's, that's where our organization has a lot of expertise. If you go to our website, there, we actually have something called um, the Roots Village Database. So mm -hmm. you, can, you can look up um, villages in China that your relative may have come from and it'll list the villages it has maps and stuff so that part is hard it's still hard but it's once you have the person's name dates and and name of the area they came from it's it's hard but it's still it's relatively easy to figure out where they came from 
in China. The other thing I wanted to mention is, you know, the Chinese are real good record keepers. And for Chinese people, it's very important to know your family history. So that was actually my next question. Okay, go ahead. Shed, you, if you can shed that. some light on the, because um, I, I always hear that, you know, when I watch shows like Finding Your Roots, you right. know, they always talk about how like the Chinese are very good at keeping records, especially genealogical records. So if you can shed some light on that. Okay. So that other people from the community, you know, are aware that these records can actually be found. Okay, so let me start this way. Again, in this part of China where most Chinese Cubans come from, most villages are centered around uh, a surname, a, you know, a family name. So you'll go to a village where everybody is named Wong. You know, it's, it's a Wong village or it's a Li village or it's a Leon village, whatever. And... Practically every village keeps something that's called in Chinese. It's called a zupu. This is Mandarin. It's Z-U-P-U. But basically, it, it's a family genealogy book that goes back 20, 25, 50 generations. So again, once you have a name, they can figure out, okay, you're so-and-so's son or daughter, um, and just trace it way back. We've had people go through our program that have traced their families back not only to the village in China, but also back up in the North China, because people went from North China down to the Guangdong area where most Chinese right. Cubans come from. And you can literally go back a thousand years, 1500 years. Wow, and, that is amazing. And see who all your ancestors are. Now, it's very, it's very male biased because China, like many other societies, is very patriarchal. So they, mm -hmm. tend to, they track male names much better than female names some you know some villages will have the women in there but in the odin days a lot of times they'll just put the the wife's name as as a surname without yeah, ever giving her actual name right mm -hmm. but that's just that's just how it was in chinese culture it's a little bit different now they're you know there's a little bit more equality for women now Okay. But again, if you can figure out who your person was and the village, chances are the, the family genealogy book will be there in the village. And That's it, amazing. And it wow. links back to the whole clan. So, for example, like, you know, I come from a sort of a small surname, Ao Yang. It's kind of an oddball name. Mm -hmm. But if you go back to my village, they have books there that literally will take you back a thousand years. So if, if, you, if you really want, you can figure out who your your great grandfather 25 generations ago was um that's amazing so you must have a huge family tree <laughs> yeah it's 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 like several telephone books just for my wow <laughs> my village and again it's all in chinese so it you know obviously you need someone who can navigate um those kind of records i i should mention one thing though not every village or family has that and that's because during the parts of the communist revolution like in the 1960s when china was getting really radical it was considered sort of backward and futile to keep these records so the communists made you know some families just destroy their genealogy books it's really a oh shame because you would lose all that information Oh, I hate when that happens. Yeah, so, <laughs> it yes. breaks my heart. <laughs> yeah. Now, some people, they just, they they hid their records away because they knew they were going to be in trouble. So they would just wrap them up and bury them in a hole somewhere. And, 
eventually China changed and now it's it's totally cool to keep those kind of records. But during the real radical part of the revolution in the 60s, it was kind of a no-no to keep that kind of information. Right. Hmm, that's good to know. Now, going back to Cuba, I, yeah. I know I heard that um, the Chinese government had uh, kept their their cemeteries, their Chinese cemetery. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So again, as I mentioned, it's if you can possibly find the gravestone of your ancestor, that's really key to unlocking a lot of this information. And there is a, 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 a Chinese cemetery in Havana. It's literally across the street from the Cementario Cristobal Colon, which is the gigantic cemetery in Cuba, as you know. Um, but right across the street is the Chinese cemetery, because back in those days, there was discrimination against the Chinese in Cuba. So the Chinese had to have their own cemetery. But it's that cemetery is still there. Um, and if you go in there, there's, you know, the, the graves do have the information written in Chinese and Spanish. Um, again, the um, there's a caretaker there who is not Chinese speaking, but... Mm -hmm. If you go to Havana and get in touch with the people at the Casino Chonghua, there obviously it's again it's the umbrella organization, and they're totally in touch with the Chinese cemetery, and they can help you, you know, um, visit that cemetery and and see if they can help you find your ancestor. Now that's not the only cemetery. I, I've been to cemeteries out in the countryside, you know, just mm -hmm. general community cemeteries. And again, you know, the local Chinese people may be buried there. So if you're from a particular town or village out in the countryside, if you can figure out who your person was, you would just go visit the local cemetery and see if you can find that ancestor's grave. And again, chances are the information will be not only in Spanish, but also in Chinese. Mm -hmm. Now, when the Chinese came in the you know, 18, 18, the first wave, the uh -huh. ones that came in the, in the 1850s um, to Cuba, did they spread out or were they mainly in Havana? Actually, they were, they were definitely spread out. So because they came, you know, as indentured laborers, so they weren't really necessarily in the city in the beginning, they were out on the plantations. Um, so wherever there was sugar sugar going on, which was a lot of the island, that's where the Chinese were sent to to work, you know, cutting sugar cane, processing sugar cane into molasses and sugar, all that stuff. Um, I remember going, I think it was in Trinidad that um, there were Chinese working there alongside the enslaved Africans on the sugar plantations there. So I think that explains why, you know, some Chinese, after they finished working on the plantations, they may have just gone to the local town and, you know, settled down there and try to make a living out in the right. countryside. Oh, interesting. Are there any other um, genealogical tips that you can offer those of Cuban Chinese ancestry? Uh, there's a there's a couple of books that I, I highly recommend. Okay. Um, one of them is the book i think we talked about this previously about uh the book is called chinese cubans and it's by professor kathleen lopez out of rutgers mm -hmm. <laughs> and it talks about the history of chinese in cuba from the earliest days to the present and part of the book is how she helped um a chinese cuban family 
trace back their genealogy and she actually accompanied them back to their village in the Pearl River Delta region. So if you oh. read that book, it's not only a general history of the Chinese in Cuba, but it, it'll give you ideas on how you might be able to figure out who your ancestors were. And then once you have that information to get back to China, if that opportunity presents itself. So <clears throat> that again, the book is called Chinese Cubans and it's by um, Professor Kathleen Lopez out of um, Rutgers. Rutgers University. Yeah, Rutgers. I'm, I'm familiar with the book and it's actually uh, my to read list <laughs> of books that I wanna read. Now, there's a couple Very of interesting. There's a couple of other books I wanted to mention. One is actually mm -hmm. fiction, but again, it the 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 author is Cristina Garcia, who's okay. who's written a number of novels about Cuba, and one of them is called Monkey Hunting. And even though it's fiction, it's very well researched, and it'll give you an idea of why people left China and what happened to them when they got to Cuba. So, I again, even though it's fiction, I think it's it provides a great background for Cuban Chinese who want to know more about their history. Oh, um, uh, can I mention two other books? Please do. Okay, there's one in Spanish. Um, the author is uh, Mitzi Espinosa Luis. And she's Chinese Cuban. You know, she's mixed race like a lot of Chinese Cubans are now. Mm -hmm. It's written in Spanish. And the name of the book is uh, Huellas de China en este lado del Atlántico. And it's, it's a history of the Chinese in Cuba, but also in other parts of the Caribbean. And okay. it's also a very useful book to understand the background. And once you kind of understand the history, I think it gives you the context to for people who are trying to figure out their particular family history and genealogy, because obviously personal history is totally connected with the general flows of history. It's like, why did oh, my absolutely. Yeah. So that's another great book. And then finally, I wanted to mention a book that's not about Cuban Chinese, but I think it could be very helpful too. So it's about um, a Jamaican Chinese family and it's written by an African American Chinese Jamaican woman by the name of Paula Madison. And the name of the book is Finding Samuel Lowe, L-O-W-E, Finding Samuel Lowe by Paula Madison. And the reason I mentioned that is, you know, Paula does not speak Chinese. You know, she had a, a mother who was half black and half Chinese, but it shows how someone who doesn't read or speak Chinese can still do the research and figure out how, you know, figure out who they're Grand, in her case, grandfather was and tried to trace it back to their village. And so it's a really good book. In fact, it's on YouTube, too. Again, if you just um, go on YouTube and look for Finding Samuel Lowe, you get some hints on how a non-Chinese speaking person of mixed race can still figure out their Chinese roots. And eventually, you know, she eventually got back in touch with her family. And to this day, she goes back and forth to China and visits them all the time. And so... It's, it's a very inspiring book for people, again, who don't may not speak Chinese, but they know they have Chinese roots and want to sort of dig deeper and figure that out. So uh, you, you've yeah. given us a lot of information. Um, I was going to ask you if you can repeat um, the website for um, for your organization, Friends okay. of Roots and yeah. the other um, Chinese Cuban organizations. Okay, so um, our organization is called Friends of Roots, and our website is literally friendsofroots, all one word, dot org. 
And if you go to that website, you know, there's information about our program, but there's also that village database. So once you know the area and your the surname of your ancestor, you can start searching for that um, for that information. Again, that's the sort of the easy part is once you know the person's name and area, it's it's still hard, but it's fairly easy to find the village. The hard part, I think, for Cuban Chinese is going to be figuring out who is my ancestor, what was his or her name in Chinese. That's going to be tough, I know. Now, the other, but the group that could might be a good resource for that is this Casino Chunghua. And again, they, they've got a website that's very robust now. You know, this it's very different from 20 years ago when they barely had any internet in Cuba, right? But now mm -hmm. it's a little bit better. And it's it's called barriochinocuba.com. Barriochinocuba.com. Yes. That's, that's pretty easy. Okay. Yeah. And I, I, under that website, there's links to all these um, organizations that I mentioned. Okay. Is there is there any website for access to the cemetery or anything like that? Or is it just better to go to Cuba and speak to someone from um, Barrio Chino, Cuba? You know, I, and, don't, I don't think that the cemetery itself has a website, but the cemetery is connected with this uh, Casino Chunghua. And I think if you get in touch with the people on the website, they probably can give you some information on how you might be able to get out to the uh, cemetery. In fact, I, I'm, I'm on the website right now. and They have a link to the uh, cementerio in, in Vadalo. Oh, okay. There's information about the cemetery there. Now, whether or not they you can email them and say, hey, can you look for my ancestors? Gravesite. I don't know if that's possible. But, right, right. But at least there's information about the cemetery on that website. I'm actually quite impressed because, again, 20 years ago, there was like nothing you could find nothing. online. And, but now it's much better. Yeah. Thank God. Yeah. That, that has helped everyone in, right. in the genealogy community. <laughs> not, you know, not just Cubans, but everyone. Right. Um, another thing um, that I was going to mention and actually ask since the Chinese spread out throughout Cuba, right? And you mentioned that there's cemeteries in other locations within Cuba. Yes. Do you know if these cemeteries have been refurbished? I know there was a, a lot of these cemeteries were, you know, a lot of the, the stones were falling apart. Um, they weren't upkept. And it was hard to, to get information from the headstones. Right. Do you know uh, if, if the Chinese government has, also, besides the one in Havana, of course, so but I, do you I, know if they, mm -hmm, go ahead, I'm sorry. So I know that there have been efforts to um, clean up and fix up the, and keep better records of the big cemetery in Havana. I do not know whether the, the cemeteries out in the countryside are, are having the same kind of upkeep. Um, again, I remember going out to a cemetery, just the general cemetery in Batavano, because that's where my wife's family was from. And it was in decent condition. I mean, you know, um, some of the lettering was sort of fading and stuff, but it, it was totally legible. And it wasn't mm -hmm. it wasn't an all Chinese cemetery. It was just the community cemetery. And they had Chinese people and you know non-Chinese Cubans all in there. But I, I just to answer your question specifically, I do not know if, um, you know, efforts to fix up those cemeteries out in the countryside is going on. Okay. 
No, I was. I just wanted to to know because I know that you know Havana is usually what everyone mentions because yes. it's the capital. Yes. And and I know uh, hearing from other people that they have worked on on the Chinese and other other communities. But I, you know, I just wanted to know because I know people always ask me. So I, it's one of those things that I wanted to know. But yeah, I mean, you have provided so much information that will help a lot of the Cuban Chinese um, in their genealogy. So um, I, I thank you very much. And I hope that you and I can keep in touch. I'm hoping that I can help anyone from from the Cuban Chinese community that comes to me and that I can refer them uh, back to you and, you know, that we, we can help them because a lot of times I see questions and, and I say to myself, well, it must be frustrating. I think the biggest hurdle for them is the language. But Most, now that you have mentioned, yeah. you know, the organizations and where they can start looking, I think that's a tremendous help. Well, I, I, it's been a pleasure, and I do hope we can meet in person. Um, maybe we can go to a Cuban-Chinese restaurant out there in New Jersey or New York City. <laughs> well, I, I doubt that I'll be going to the West Coast anytime soon, <laughs> but if you come this way, please let me know. Look me up, and yeah, let's definitely get together and go to, uh, to a Cuban-Chinese. There's actually one in Elizabeth, so maybe we can, we can go there. That would be that would be. It's a, actually it's actually Peruvian, Cuban, and Chinese. Yeah, which I, is pretty I, interesting. Yeah, I noticed over the years that a lot of the uh, old Cuban Chinese places they've sort of morphed into more like Chino Latino restaurants. Um, mm -hmm. so they'll serve you know lomo saltado and uh, asapao, you know things that are not uh -huh. exactly Cuban, but they're more like uh, Peruvian or whatever but you know it's still kind of fun to go to those restaurants and see the old chinese waiters speaking uh caribbean spanish you know that really fast spanish <laughs> you know the the chinese culture was so influential in cuba that i remember growing up you know uh when my aunt would come over because she she was like the family cook mm -hmm. she would come over and she would make a rochino <laughs> <laughs> so you know even even like i don't have any chinese background but even those that didn't have Chinese background, we still incorporated that as part of our Cuban cuisine. <laughs> I mean, who, who doesn't love rice, right? <laughs> I know. And I always and I always tell my, my Chinese friends, you know, Chinese Cuban rice is different from American, That's right. um, you know, Chinese. And they're like, how is that? I'm like, you have to you have to go to a, to a restaurant. That's the best that I can do. Because personally, unfortunately, I don't know how to make it. <laughs> but um I can't wait. Actually, my aunt told me she was going to have me over after the, you know, the new year and the holiday and all this. So I'm going to ask her <laughs> to make me some Cuban Chinese rice. Excellent. I haven't had. <laughs> well, Steve, thank you so much for for being in, in our show. And um, I look forward to continuing to keep in touch with you. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Muchas gracias, William, por estar con nosotros hoy en el Cuban Family Roots Podcast. Hoy queremos hablar sobre el libro de genealogía cubana, San Isidoro de Orguín. 
padrón de las casas y familias de este pueblo. La primera pregunta que te quería hacer es, ¿cómo surgió el libro de genealogía? Mira, este libro surgió primero que todo por la pasión de la genealogía. Tú sabes que la genealogía es algo que los que nos apasionamos en el tema estamos constantemente en esto y esto es casi todo, esto es para toda la vida prácticamente. Y la segunda razón es porque en una ocasión me encontré que existía un censo de Holguín, el primero, del año 1735, y este censo, eh, la ciudad, en realidad el pueblo comienza aproximadamente hacia el 1728, que es cuando están los primeros, eh, las primeras inscripciones en la, en la iglesia parroquial, y entonces eh, el censo lo hace un funcionario, del, del Cabildo de Bayamo, porque Bayamo era el pueblo más importante y el más cercano a este, eh, a este inicial o incipiente poblado de Holguín, que eran muy pocas casas en realidad cuando comienza la, la población. Entonces este, este, este funcionario del Cabildo de Bayamo va a Holguín y hace un censo de cada una de las casas del pueblo y quienes viven en las casas, incluidos los esclavos y los nombres de los esclavos que es muy interesante. Entonces, ¿qué pasa? Que este censo está en el Archivo de Indias y un día parece que lo descubre un genealogista norteamericano que se llama Peter Carr y él lo publica en forma de en un folleto que casi todo el mundo tiene sobre los censos cubanos del siglo XVI, XVII y XVIII que fue publicado en, en Estados Unidos y ahí aparecía el censo de Holguín. Entonces, cuando yo, eh, cuando yo lo consulto, yo me doy cuenta que hace falta completar datos porque solamente vienen los nombres de las personas que vivían, las esposas y algunos hijos y la fecha de nacimiento y era poco más o menos lo único que había y, y los esclavos que había en caso de la gente que tenían esclavos. Y entonces yo dije, está bien, son mucha gente, pero nadie sabe quién es quién, porque los nombres aparecían Juana Roja, pero nada más. Entonces yo dije, voy a retomar el censo completo y como yo tenía en mi poder eh, los primeros libros de Holguín de bautizos, de funciones y, y matrimonios, entonces empecé a buscar en los libros a cada personaje y empecé a completar los datos, empecé a poner la fecha de nacimiento, de bautizos del que podía, del que lo encontraba, el bautizo de los hijos, la fecha, los apellidos completos, el nombre de los padres, que eso también lo, lo, lo pude encontrar, eh, eh, y otros, otros detalles, la fecha de nacimiento, de casamiento, eh, también pude encontrar, por ejemplo, a veces hay una persona que en el 1735 tenía 20 años y no se había casado, pero se casa dos años después. Entonces yo, entre paréntesis, añado la persona con la que se casó y el nombre de la persona y la, y la fecha de casamiento, etcétera. De modo que hizo un trabajo completo en el que aparece prácticamente todas las personas que vivían en Holguín entre el 1730 y el 1740 y pico aproximadamente, con sus hijos, sus, eh, sus esposas, eh, los apellidos completos y, la, y el máximo número de datos posible. Y entonces, en eso, eh, así fue como surgió la idea de hacer este libro, o sea, con, 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 con el objetivo de enriquecer un censo inicial que existía, pero que tenía muy pobres datos. Sí, yo me imagino que eh, esa labor fue durísima porque wow cómo pudiste empatar estos nombres con bueno porque son años de, de años de búsqueda primero que todo yo empecé muy joven en Cuba a, a, a buscar en las iglesias y primero que todo empecé con mi propia genealogía porque por mi familia paterna eh, por la familia Navarrete y, y son todos de, de Oriente de Bayamo y de Holguín 
y eh, por la materna son de La Habana y de Matanzas y, y Santa Clara, pero eh, más bien por la, la paterna que, que, que yo había comenzado todo a hacerlo en Cuba, eh, yo sabía eh, quiénes eran mis ancestros hasta 1700 y algo allí en Holguín, porque lo había buscado estando en Cuba. Pero por supuesto, cuando llegué a Francia hace 30 años, eh, traté de completar y de empezar a, a buscar más, eh, eh, más datos de, de otras familias, porque finalmente todas las familias están emparentadas cuando son familias fundadoras de, de un pueblo. Y entonces eh, luego tuve la posibilidad de tener acceso eh, a las copias digitalizadas de los primeros libros de Holguín, y cuando los tuve, ahí fue cuando me di cuenta que podía eh, buscar y encontrar cada personaje de, del censo, y ahí fue cuando me dije, eh, pues es muy fácil, hacer un, voy a hacer un libro, pero de todas formas es el trabajo de años, años de investigación, y es un libro que además me ayudó a hacerlo una persona que también se interesa en la genealogía, y, y, que, y que tiene genealogías en Holguín, que se llama María Dolores Espino, que es profesora de, de, de la Universidad de San Tomás en Miami, y ella, ella me ayudó también porque ella, ella es apasionada de, de genealogía, y, y claro, eh, ayudó a corregir, a buscar datos, informaciones, y o sea que tuve una colaboradora en la Florida y que, que me ayudaba cantidad y que, y, que, y que ella viajaba a Cuba, yo no, yo no, yo no he viajado nunca a Cuba, pero ella, ella solía llevar estudiantes a Cuba, entonces, eh, por allí podía traer también datos desde Holguín, ¿ves? O sea, ha sido un uh -huh. trabajo de muchos años también. Ajá. Ah, y, y ahí va mi, mi otra pregunta. ¿Cómo pudiste armar este gran libro teniendo en cuenta ¿sabes? todas las dificultades que tenemos aquí en el exilio, tanto en Estados Unidos como en cualquier lugar del mundo, uh, para obtener archivos parroquiales? ¿Cómo lo hizo con mucho, ella? Con mucho trabajo. Yo, bueno, yo, yo recuerdo que hubo momentos en cuando yo no tenía los, la los libros digitalizados. Yo llamaba desde Francia a la, a la señora del archivo de Holguín, que se llama Mirella, y entonces me pasaba una, una hora y dos horas en el teléfono y Mirella me leía en voz alta, me iba leyendo todos los nombres de eh, la, los bautizados. Y me decía, tal, tal fecha, Juan Rodríguez, hijo de fulano y de tal y yo copiando, y miré y hablando, y yo copiando, y eran horas en el teléfono que me costaban una fortuna. Es, en los años 90, cuando no había internet, ni WhatsApp, ni nada, de este, o sea, estas cosas, era llamando por teléfono eh, a la iglesia y hablando con la señora que se ocupaba de, de los libros. Uh -huh. Pero es un trabajo de muchos años de, 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 de perseverancia y de... Y de, y, y de pasión, porque uno lo hace porque a uno le gusta, si uno, esto no lo puede hacer nadie que no le guste, el que no le guste ni lo, no lo mira, ni, 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 ni se preocupa por eso, pero al que le gusta, es todo el mundo es más o menos como yo y como tú, o sea que vamos hasta el final, cueste lo que cueste. Claro, y, y no es algo que uno vaya eh, pueda hacer mucha plata. <ríe> no, o sea, al contrario, cuesta, cuesta muchísimo dinero. Porque hasta uh -huh. yo que he publicado en, en unos 30 libros de novela, de poesía, de ensayo, de, 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 de diccionarios que, que he escrito, eh, periodismo y tantísimas otras cosas, mis libros me dan dinero. El libro de genealogía hubo que pagarlo, o sea, es, es el único libro que yo he escrito a cuenta de autor. Cuando, cuando eres escritor eh, confirmado, normalmente te pagan por escribir, las editoriales te pagan por escribir, pero en un libro de genealogía eres tú quien pagas por publicarlo, porque es que ningún editor va a correr con los gastos de un libro que te van a decir, sí, pero esto no más que le interesa a 50 personas, eh, esto es una inversión que, no, que, que lo que hago es perder dinero, 
Entonces, en ese caso, uno le dice, bueno, dime cuánto te cuesta sacarme 200 ejemplares y yo lo pago. ¿Ves lo que te quiero decir? O sea, que es el único libro es el único libro que no da dinero, al contrario, que uno pierde dinero con él. Que uno pierde, sí, es verdad. Muchos archivos han... Sí, te digo, sé lo que me vas a preguntar. El, 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 tienes el caso de Bayamo, que es fatal, uh -huh. porque ahí se perdieron los libros. Por ejemplo, en el norte de Holguín hay una iglesia que se llama San eh, Jesús del Monte de Auras, eh, que está entre Jibara y, y Fray Benito, y, y, y se han perdido, creo que nada más que quedan dos libros, los demás están perdidos porque se quedaron pegadas las páginas y no se pueden abrir. Eh, hay, faltan libros de otros de otras iglesias, eh, falta, hay iglesias que le falta un libro, le faltan dos, pero también sucede en La Habana, por ejemplo, el libro uno de Guanabacoa está perdido y cosas así. Uh -huh. Entonces, eh, eh, claro, eh, se, se ha salvado lo que se ha podido y hay, y hay bastante, porque hay, hay, hay ciudades, por ejemplo, en España es peor, en España con la guerra civil española muchos pueblos quemaron en la plaza pública todos los libros de la iglesia. Y hay pueblos enteros de España que no tienen absolutamente nada antes del 1936, que fue cuando comenzó la guerra civil. Todavía en Cuba hubo algunos incendios por razones de, de, eh, puntuales en la historia y a, algunos libros muy viejos porque ya el, el mal clima tropical y qué sé yo. Pero yo considero que la situación no es tan catastrófica como, por ejemplo, como en España, que, que la mayoría de, de los pueblos donde hubo enfrentamientos entre los republicanos y los y los y los y los otros eh, eh, pues quemaron los libros cada vez que los rojos llegaban a un pueblo quemaban, lo primero que hacían era quemar los libros de la iglesia sí. y, lo, y, y lo sé por mi propia experiencia porque he estado buscando antepasados míos en la región de Castellón y cuando voy a la iglesia me dicen en la iglesia no hay nada todo empieza en el año todo empieza en el año 37 después de la guerra civil de, 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 después del momento que quemaron los libros ves qué crimen completamente inútil y, además uh -huh, sí y qué tú le puedes aconsejar a, a, a un norteamericano o a un cubano que esté en otro país que no sea Cuba que quiera digitalizar algo en alguna iglesia en, de algún pueblo qué consejo le puedes dar ya que tú bueno el primer consejo es llevarse bien con el cura de la iglesia y el, el dueño de la iglesia y de los libros porque sí. es el cura el que manda el cura es la primera el primer eslabón y, y luego convencerlo del interés de, de la digitalización. Lo que pasa es que muchos curas no quieren digitalizar porque tienen miedo a perder dinero. Porque ¿qué pasa? Que como luego eh, las partidas que ellos mandan a buscar a los empleados que trabajan con los libros hay que pagarlas, eh, que no son gratuitas, eh, la iglesia eso es una forma de entrada de dinero que tienen, que además es lógico, ¿no? Porque son ellos los propietarios de, los, de, los, de esos libros. Eh, entonces habría que convencer al cura de, de la utilidad de salvar ese patrimonio hay algunos curas que están de acuerdo pero yo sé que hay otros que no les gusta la idea entonces por ahí es pues, donde empieza la, la cosa, o convencer al arzobispo de la, de la región eh, que es el que, el que en última instancia eh, daría la orden a todos los curas de que aceptaran que, que se digitalizaran los libros y por ejemplo, este libro que tú hiciste ya tiene esa, esa información. ¿Qué beneficio tiene eso pa, para esa iglesia que ya tú tienes un libro que está, está publicado? Que pues mira, la, iglesia, la, iglesia, la, iglesia, la gente que quiere tener sus su certificaciones en papel, porque hay gente que quiere tener la prueba en papel, ¿eh? la gente que uh -huh. no están conformes con, con solamente eh, la cosa de que le dijeron que fulano eh, eh, nació en tal año. 
eh, eh, el libro mío sirve para eso, porque si yo estoy diciendo que Juan Rodríguez Mena eh, nació, el, eh, se casó en Holguín en el año 1736, y estoy diciendo el libro, el folio y el número, eh, el que llega a tener a, a esa persona como ancestro, lo único que tiene que hacer es escribir y decir, eh, mire, eh, yo quiero el certificado de matrimonio de Juan Rodríguez Menas en el libro 1, folio 4, eh, número 25. Es hasta mejor, porque es que ya no tienen ni que buscarlo, ya, ya, ya le está diciendo exactamente dónde está. Y entonces la iglesia lo, lo único que tiene que hacer es ir allí y llenar el, el, el certificado, ponerle el cuño y, 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 y cobrar y mandarlo. O sea que es hasta un beneficio para la propia iglesia, ¿no? Te voy a preguntar una preguntita más difícil. ¿Piensas hacer más de genealogía? Yo sé que sí, tengo tiempo segundo no lo libre. tienes. Exactamente, lo has entendido todo perfectamente. <risa> lo difícil aquí es el tiempo. el tiempo. Yo tengo un segundo libro que estoy haciendo y llevo, estoy en eso hace cuatro o cinco años. Y no, eh, vaya, es increíble. Este que estoy haciendo es todos los matrimonios eh, de Holguín del 1700 30 hasta el 1775, o sea, el primero y el segundo libro, todos los matrimonios, pero con todos los detalles, las informaciones, los hijos y las esposas de, de cada una de las personas que se casó en Holguín, y yo tengo toda la información, lo que no tengo es el tiempo para sentarme todos los días, tendría que hacerlo todos los días, y aún así me hace falta un año entero, porque son mucha gente y muchas búsquedas, y son letras antiguas, y hay que sacar bien y mirar bien, y y volver a leer y tal. Lo tengo bastante avanzado, estoy como en el año 1760, pero todavía me faltan 10 años más. Tengo todos los datos, lo que pasa es que tengo es que enriquecer y corregir. Y eso lleva tiempo, pero ¿sabes qué? Lo hago tranquilamente, cada vez que tengo un, un poco de tiempo lo hago. Entonces voy avanzando y en algún momento cuando termine, pues nada, me toca pagar y sacarlo, como el anterior. <ríe> Así sí, será. Verdad. De verdad te quiero agradecer por estar en nuestro programa hoy y, y también por darnos este regalo, porque en realidad, como tú dijiste, esto no es algo de que tú te, te enriqueces, sino es, es una no, no. cosa que, o sea, de, de Orguín no hay muchas cosas, entonces esto es algo muy importante para las personas que vienen de esa región de Cuba, tener algo, porque siempre estamos mencionando La Habana, Matanzas, pero nunca le damos la atención a Holguín. De parte mía, yo tengo um, ancestros en Bayamón y de todas las personas que, que son de Holguín, que están en el exilio, te queremos dar muchas gracias por estos libros, porque de verdad que son un regalo para nosotros. Muchas bueno, gracias. Gracias a ti por el programa este Cuban Rock, que es tan importante, sobre todo que lo haga alguien desde Estados Unidos, joven, que se fue de Cuba, pequeño y tal. Eso me parece increíble, así que yo también te agradezco muchísimo. ¿eh? Tenemos que hacer esto no solamente para, para encontrar a nuestros antepasados y, y recordarlos y, y que la historia sepa quién fueron, pero también para los descendientes que un día van a estar como exacto, buscando. Exacto, exacto, porque ahora a nadie le interesa cuando es muy joven, pero después cuando la gente tiene cierta edad, empiezan a dedicarse a esto de los ancestros y se dan cuenta que han perdido mucho tiempo y que es un poco tarde. Y entonces quieren, quieren sacarlo todo rápido, rápido, y esto no es rápido, rápido, esto es el trabajo de toda una vida. Exactamente, porque, por ejemplo, yo siempre estuve interesada en la genealogía desde que era chiquita, pero vine a, en realidad a, a integrarme, ¿cómo, se, ¿cómo es la palabra que quiero saber? Bien sí, sí, a, a, a parte bien del tema. Ajá, 
cuando, después que mi papá falleció. Y ya, a veces, entonces ya era más difícil tener informaciones. Era más difícil, aunque tenemos la facilidad de, del ADN y todo eso, no hay nada claro. como ten, tener a alguien vivo que te pueda contar las cosas como son. Entonces, de verdad que es algo um, que creo que si todos nosotros podemos poner nuestro granito, tú como escritor, eh, yo haciendo este podcast, aunque yo no soy, you know, no soy historian, no, no sé mucho de la historia de Cuba, pero traer personas como usted, como, como tú, perdón, no te, sí, quiero, sí. no te quiero tratar de usted. Porque, no, no me envejezca, no me envejezca. No te quiero envejecer. Personas como tú que que están que, que tienen eh, un, una, una audiencia y pueden hacer esto de verdad que te lo agradecemos mucho bueno pues nada aquí todos nos agradecemos mucho el, el, el avance de la forma en que estamos tratando de, recu de recuperar toda esta información y, y nada seguiremos seguiremos bueno mucho gusto y, y muchas gracias nuevamente por estar en este programa que tengas gracias un buen a día ti. gracias a ti Aileen adiós Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and like to help support the Cuban Family Roots podcast, please share it with others, post it on your social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Instagram at Cuban Family Roots or on Twitter at Cuban Family Roots Podcast or Facebook at Cuban Family Roots Podcast. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.